I'm Aaron Sprinkle. And I'm Matthew Schwartz. And this is Moon Traveling. Yeah, we're live. What's up, dude? What's up, dude? This is our fourth episode, or five since we've split one into two. Um, But uh, thank you guys for joining us again on Moon Traveling. Yeah. Um, uh, This is our first remote uh, session, and we've been um, spending the morning trying to work out all the kinks, um, and hopefully (laughs) I'm recording everything correctly. (laughs) Um. That being said, I want to do a shout out real quick to Personas and Perry T at Personas uh, for uh, sponsoring our, our podcast and hooking me up with some awesome gear so we can be more professional and, and sound amazing. Personas is the best. Yeah. I was actually so surprised that you use Personas. So that, that's awesome, man. Yeah. I switched over from Pro Tools to Studio One about, it's been a little over four or almost four years now. And I have only been affirmed by that decision on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I love them. Um, so yeah, uh, I'm just going to run through a little bit of housekeeping and stuff. Uh, we cool. had a couple of people send in some questions. Um, and for people that uh, we're, we're working on our format and getting it and such, uh, we obviously um, are going to be taking your your requests and your your input and your questions and such so keep those coming um i guess uh, first off you and i had a meeting a couple weeks ago and we kind of discussed what we want this podcast uh to look like and kind of defining it and such and we mm-hmm. have decided that we want to do uh this uh an episode a month um at the very least and if we end up you know like last time with the ama we ended up having uh, have to split it in two, then that month we'll have two episodes if we have something like that happen. Right. Um, and uh, we've got, uh, so today our episode for the people joining us is going to be about our history with music and uh, how it grabs us and has it affected our lives and how it won't let go. And then um, we've got two more episodes coming for you. I'll, I'll tell you about the next one towards the end of the episode and such. And then um, also what's going on, let's see. Um, uh, the, the record label that I, I run, Pacific Records, has got two albums coming out. One is the Menders album, The Devil's Real, which comes out October 29th. You can pre-order that now. And then Aaron's album, Certainty, is coming out uh, November 12th. Mm-hmm. Getting stoked. It's getting closer. Crazy. Um, pre-orders for that is up, and uh, we already sold out of our super bundle, which is amazing. Um, so you guys get yeah. on that. Um I will tell you this. So I, uh, I saw this quote the other day. Well, I guess it wasn't a quote, but a fact the other day that I thought was really appropriate. So uh, if you listen to our episode that was about certainty, he talked about um, went through each song, explained what the songs were about, and you know why, how they affected him, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, we were talking about slow stop and how you know it's got a, it's about nostalgia and and how you can't go home and all those kind of things. Well, someone posted this about nostalgia, and I wanted to share it because I thought it was mm-hmm. really really cool. Um, the word nostalgia comes from two Greek words: nostros, which means homecoming, and alga, meaning pain. It was pinned in the 15th century to describe a medical ailment of soldiers fighting away from their homeland who struggled with profound homesickness. Eventually, this medical understanding gave way to a more poetic understanding of the pain and longing for something far away or in the past. It can be both sadness and joy. Wow. How, how cool is that, right? That's so cool. 
yeah. So I heard that or I read that and I was just like immediately thought of slow stop, you know, cause that's like you mentioned, like that song is basically about that. And it, it, it's so crazy to think that nostalgia really is that, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's really um, cool. All right. Well, a couple more things, and we'll go right into our episode. Uh, I guess the only other thing that I, going on, I guess, between of us, and if you've got something that I didn't mention, please throw it out there. I am starting to tour again. I'll be in Georgia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia in the month of October. Nice. So if you live in those states, uh, check out my website, PacificaRock.com. Um, or my Instagram, or whatever, and see where I'm playing and stuff. So come out to that. Um, do you have anything coming up in the the next month? Anybody needs to know about? Well, not. It's not a an, an event announcement. It's just I just wanted to say like thank you so much to everyone that um, has pre ordered the EP. Um, your support just means the world. Um, and, you know, like we repeat over and over, like, I couldn't do this without you. I wouldn't have a reason to do it without you, to be honest. But um, since this is, you know, a real, truly independent grassroots effort, I just wanted to plead <laughs> slightly with you to just keep uh, posting it to your friends and on your social medias because um, that stuff actually really helps a lot. Um, the algorithms are so tricky and uh, it's really hard to get um, the most basic information in front of people and every little bit that you you guys do really does help. So, And I know you have already done a lot of that and I appreciate it, but keep it up. Love you. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, we, we, we've been very lucky. There's been a lot of pre-orders and we really appreciate you guys. Uh, like Aaron said, it, it, the best thing you can do for any independent artist is liking, sharing, commenting, um, all those kind of things because that stuff goes so far. Because like you said, the algorithm, every day they change it and it works less and less for the artist. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, and if you if you haven't yet checked out our episode about the EP Certainty, go do that because you'll hear about you know the recording and each song as well as... Um, you know, uh, hear snippets of each of the songs. Um, and then, um, they also has a music video for slow stop. Go check that out. And I believe you're working on a new video at some point, right? Yeah. The plan is to do, um, hopefully get a video done somewhere around the time that the album releases for another song on it. Yeah. Sweet. So we had three questions come in since our last episode. So I'm going to just run through those and then we'll start our episode. Um, So uh, the first question is from Chet Harvey. He says, I love that y'all are doing this podcast. I was a huge Rose Blossom Punch fan when Ephemere came out uh, and I listened to that album nonstop for about a year. I don't think I've ever heard about how Rose Blossom Punch came together or why they broke up um, so suddenly. Um, uh, would you love uh, sorry he would love to hear anything about that um cool i think you kind of touched a little bit on this but yeah yeah thanks for that question um well let's see the uh, rose blossom punch really started as a um a way for me to you know um make my own songs and do my own songs uh when i was still in poor old lou i just had this really strong desire to do my own thing. And, um, when I did, 
I did a song for a compilation that Tooth and Nail put out called Artcore. Um, and I was talking to my friend at the time, uh, Jim Dantzler. He and I did graphic design together at the time. And he, I was saying that I kind of wanted to do a band name instead of like a solo name. Hmm. Um, and he actually um, thought of the name. Um, it was actually from a, I believe it, it's, it was literally a Crabtree and Evelyn cookbook oh. of like this hoity-toity like punch, literally, that you make with rose petals in it. Um, so if but, someone's a huge, huge fan, they need to find this cookbook to complete their, their yeah. uh, catalog order. <laughs> yeah. And so this was, you know, early, mid-90s. I forget what year it was exactly. And so I, I wrote a song and I went into the studio and um, I had my friend Paul, um, Muma, played drums on it. Um, and, uh, it sort of just evolved from there, um, into a band by the time, um, I really like decided to leave poor Lou and, and pursue my own thing as an artist and as a producer. Um, it was sort of both things that kind of led me to that. Um, it just evolved and, you know, Nick, you know, was an obvious choice to bring in. And then Terry was a friend that I just loved and totally respected his taste in music. And I knew he played guitar, so I brought him in on that. And that's how it happened. The The, the reason that we quit is a bit complicated and I can't go into all of it, but um, it was just sort of a perfect storm of a bunch of like, I, I don't know if I want to say signs or like, you know, it just was like a bunch of punches, you know, and it mm -hmm. just, no pun intended. And it, it just, it wasn't even that we decided to break up. It was just like, it was over. Um, yeah. But yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of people don't, just don't realize really honestly, and you, you kind of said this on the AMA episode, but like to create something so magical, uh, I don't know, like bands and music and albums and stuff like they're, they're lightning in a bottle and, and like they, they almost never last, you know? So if you're able to right. create it and have those moments at all, that in itself is the joy, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, these people have these albums, they can get them and, and, um, and, uh, you know, there's at least that, but yep. yes. So Rose Blossom Plunch did Ephemere and uh, So Sorry to Disappoint You EP that did the two songs, the Art Core 1 and 2, and then there was like one other compilation y'all had like a song on, and that was it, right? Yeah, I think we did... Take Time to Listen, is what it's called? A, a song for, yeah, a five-minute walk compilation. Yeah. A, um, the, a song that I ended up redoing on my right. second solo album, but the, the Rose Blossom Punch version is like way better. I honestly threw it on... I didn't have enough songs to finish my second solo album and I was in Nashville and mixing with JR and um we just, I just was like let's just retrack this one here and I like it I mean it it turned out cool but there's something yeah. about the first version that's just it's it's not the same like cool yeah yeah, I always wondered. It, it's always interesting when an artist re-records their music and what the catalyst is for doing so, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Nirvana was always famous. They had um, a song called Verse, Chorus, Verse that um, I read that 
they recorded that song probably seven times throughout their career, Whoa. like different eras. Like it was, he had it written before Bleach and he recorded it during there and it didn't get released. He got reco- recorded for Nevermind, didn't get released, did get released on a compilation, but he was never even happy with that because mm. that was more of a label decision kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then he recorded it again for In Euro and, and he's, there's something like five or seven versions of it and they're all pretty close to the same thing, but for some reason he just couldn't get it right. And I just thought that was so cool. That's crazy. so interesting. Yeah. All right. So next question is from Patrick Kermot. Uh, he said, Hey guys, sorry. I didn't think about it in time for the AMA episode, but I did think of a question. I'll try not to be too long winded. The context Here we is, go. yeah, <laughs> it's not that long. <laughs> <Just kidding. laughs> the context is that some friends and I were talking to Matt Goldman. He was there playing drums with luxury. If people don't know, Matt Goldman is an amazing producer who's also done stuff for tooth and nail, um, as well as other bands and stuff. Um, Super cool dude. And incredible yeah. drummer too. Just oh phenomenal. gosh. Yeah. Um, and he, he, uh, anyway, so he was playing drums of luxury at, at uh, cornerstone and I think 2001. And we were talking about one of the EPs from seven head division, which your brother Jesse played in. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, he mentioned that he had heard it and just no, gave him, he didn't play in it. Sorry. No, he didn't. Nope. Oh, okay. Nope. okay. Sorry. I don't know why okay. I just said that. No, he <laughs> is why I know them. But. Oh, okay. I guess uh, I don't. Did, I actually don't do know. S- I mean, Andy King, who played on Certainty, who played two songs on Certainty, he was the drummer yeah. of Seven Head Division. Okay. Well, um, I think maybe he he did a split with them. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, like, maybe that is something yeah, like that. that. Anyway, my memory is terrible about that. Concept. Yeah, mine too. Somebody send us and, and correct us. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway, he mentioned that he had heard it and it just gave him all kinds of ideas and how he would love to work with them and what direction he would take it if they were if he were to pr- produce a record for them. So mm-hmm. the question I have is, are there any records you've heard that filled you with ideas and made you want to work with someone that you maybe had never had a chance to? Thanks. Oh, wow. Um Gosh. I guess it would need to be somebody that's like obtainable, I guess as well. You actually would have a phone number or, or yeah. I mean, that's it's funny because Luxury is actually one of the bands that back in the day I was like, man, I would love to get yeah. in the studio with them, and I just really loved you know what they did and like. They're, they're, I don't know. I felt like Kurt, it would have been like a good yeah. match. You know what I mean? But, yeah, um, I, I agree. And they're currently uh, like wood shopping, whatever the word is. Uh, a brand new album. So, I mean, I don't know if you got time and are interested, you could always reach out to them. Yeah. I don't, that, I mean, uh, I don't recall very many specifics other than that. I just know that, you know, over the years, I mean, it's a lot of years that we're talking about Mm -hmm. here. You know, there's been specific albums that I've heard that have just really hit, um, uh, you know, my, it just it inspired me at a level that like made me excited about music again. And it's funny because like the best albums for me are the ones that simultaneously make you want to quit music forever and inspire you an equal amount, yeah. you know, like I might as well just give up because this is so perfect or whatever. Um, but yeah, that, that that's a cool thing to think about i think like i said i don't really have any really good specific answers to that but that i love that uh story about matt and i I think that's really cool yeah i think 
from from that world, you know, the the vaguely Christian world in the late '90s, early 2000s, and stuff. Uh, I mean, for me, the bands that stuck out the albums. I don't know if I'm gonna go into albums or whatever. This kind of leads into our episode anyway, but um, would be you know, Fine China, Luxury, Starflyer, mm-hmm. your stuff, you know, and honestly, like I think that the person I would work with that that I don't personally know and I obviously can't work with anymore would be Gene Eugene. I think there was just a handful of people that really had, you just could tell that like they could be anywhere and could make something sound great and have really great ideas. And and he was certainly one of them. You could do a whole episode about Gene, but yeah, getting to know him and work with him a little bit was massively impact. Oh, I, I just thought of another album. Um, was that album the that band the swoon we poor Lou actually covered one of their songs on uh Street I love, Six, but um, love that, that song. album was a huge just like I mean we were like what is going on and Charlie Peacock actually produced that record too oh interesting yeah I think the for me uh, what really caught me about Eugene Eugene was his work with Starflyer like going when they did Americana and then definitely fashion focus, like just kind of like changed them. And I was like, Whoa, what is this? And then, um, and then also Plank Eye when they lost their lead singer and then they, the guitar player and the bass player kept going Mm -hmm. that, that album uh, that came out uh, relocation that blew my mind when it came Mm -hmm. out and this is so good. Um, all right, cool. So our last question is from Eric Lede. Um, he says, first off, been a huge fan of yours since poor old Lou. Of all the time spent around tooth and nail Christian musicians, did you ever spend any time hanging hanging or musical time with Michael Knott? I always hoped you two would collab. So that kind of is a good segue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Actually, um, we were fans um, and my brother was like the big fan, but we... Uh, Rocket and a Bomb is probably still in my mm. top 10 favorite albums of all time. I mean, it's just... Is that LSU? It's that's just, No, that's a Michael Knott. Oh, that's record, actually Michael Knott. Okay. Yeah, it's 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 just a perfect album, and Gene did that. But when we when Pearl Lou was down recording um, Mind Size uh, over, you know, we did the drums in Seattle, and then we did the rest at the green room with Terry and Derry. Michael was just around the green room all the time back then. Mm. And, um, you know, I don't like know him very well. Like, I think if we saw each other, we would, you know, it would be cool. And we would like say what up and be able to have stuff to talk about. And I think he would probably remember who I was, but I remember just kind of being around him and he just gave off that vibe. Um, he just had this aura about him of like, yeah greatness <laughs> and like myster- mystery um i actually opened for him once when i was working on one i was out in nashville working with jr again on it was either that it was either kindest i kind of think it was kindest days but it, but i flew to i think kansas city and opened for him uh just an acoustic show um but yeah i I've always, I mean, been a huge fan. My brother, I want to say my brother's played drums with him before, live. Um, I mean, who hasn't played sure. drums with <laughs> Yeah. But yeah. And I remember, oh, I have a great Michael Knott story, actually, at Cornerstone. Um, 
he borrowed my, uh, like right last minute he was, he played right before poor old Lou at Cornerstone mm-hmm. in some tent. And, uh, he, right before he asked if he could borrow my telly and it was, it's my, my black telly, you know, my 92 that I bought in 92 and it's the main guitar on all the poor old Lou stuff. It's you know, virtually the only guitar I've, I used during that era. And when he, when I got it back from him, it literally had dried blood caked all over it. Oh God. Like the strings were just caked in dried blood. Cause he, so when he gross. played, sometimes he would just thrash his knuckles against the strings and just get blood everywhere. <laughs> Did he so use a pick fun. or no? I don't think so. Uh-uh. Yeah. I feel like he didn't, I don't know in general if he did, but I feel like at that show he did not use a pick. And yeah, it was, there was, it was so funny. Um, I was so like confused. <laughs> yeah. Are you a germaphobe? Um, not, I mean, in some instances it, there, there isn't time to be in that situation. Well, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like you just <laughs> have to figure out how to get it back into playing shape so you can get yeah. out there and play. <laughs> well, yeah, I feel like if, if, if someone handed me a guitar like that, I, I definitely have a kind of a freak out moment. But yeah. yeah. Like you said, it, I've definitely been in situations where it's like, okay, here we go. I mean, I, I, I have sang on some mics that were real gnarly and that yeah, looking yeah. back, I'm like, oh man, I can't believe I put my mouth up. Cause I'm one of those two that put my mouth on the mic kind of thing, especially as totally. a totally, it, um, there's been shows where I tried not to, and then halfway through the show, you're feeling it. You're not even thinking about it. And I'm like, oh, God, that's so gross. <laughs> I know. Or when a mic oh. smells. That's oh, the God. Worst. Oh. Um, I, I can smell it right now. <laughs> yeah, I know. There's like a that's specific so, smell. so gross. Yeah, the, the thing I, I need to say with this mic, not blood guitar, he didn't hand it to me with blood. He just put it away. And then right, right, like right. 10 minutes later, I went and opened my case. And at first, like, I thought it was like mud or rust. Yeah, you're like, what I thought is it that? somehow rusted in like, you know, right. an hour. <laughs> I was so confused. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> but I'm That's not even, funny. I'm not sure that he knew <laughs> that he bled all over my guitar. <laughs> yeah. I've definitely seen my guitar like that when I've opened up the case and be like, what is that? Oh, yeah. That's blood. That's my blood. Yeah. But yeah. All right. Well, um, Thank you guys for sending your questions. Um, as we've mentioned before, this podcast is all about um, you know you being a part of it. So if you have questions, make sure you send them to us. Um, well, we have the email at the end of the episode. Uh, you can also do a v- voicemail through our, um, our provider and such. And, yeah, um, through through Anchor FM. Is that what it is? Yeah, Anchor yeah. FM. You Anchor can, FM. You can leave a voicemail. There's actually one on there, and I keep forgetting to send it to you. Um, um, we'll do that well, we'll, in the next uh, episode. Yeah. We'll, We'll put it next time. Or, or if you want to do the magic of editing, you can just put it in. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, all right. Cool, cool. Uh, so we're going to jump into this episode. This is our episode on our relationship to music. Um, so let's get into it. Um, I've got a whole bunch of like prompt questions, but as you guys know, that we, we kind of just want to see where this goes. But um, So Aaron, music. What's your earliest memory with music? What's the first time you remember hearing something or it, it touching you or whatever, even if it wasn't something you liked? Well, my, my earliest, like, I'm sure, I mean, I, obviously I heard music before this, but my, <laughs> my big memory, I've, and I've actually, I apologize in advance if anyone's ever heard this story because I feel like I've told this story on like two other podcasts, so I'll try to keep it short, but um, you know, 
the island I grew up on, we lived in this real, we lived in a bunch of areas, but at the time when I was in, in second and third grade, we lived in this really weird area where you had to like, you had to drive down this long dirt road and then park in a dirt parking lot and then walk about a quarter of a mile down a trail to get down to the houses. They were basically beach rentals, mm-hmm. but um, they were mostly seasonal, but we lived there full time. Love it. And, uh, and the way it, the way it was laid out is there was like all these houses that basically ha- had it almost was like they shared a giant front yard maybe like one two three four five six six or seven houses that the only way you could get to them was to go down the trail that basically led to our house and then walk in the grass all the way down to the other houses mm-hmm. and because in front of the grass was a bulkhead and then the beach. Okay, yeah. And uh, so there was this um, older couple who lived full-time at the very end, right on the kind of the point there. And um, they were really nice. But they had, like, their grandkid would come stay with them sometimes. Mm-hmm. And uh, he he was really not very nice to me. Um, he was older, and he was just oh. kind of a jerk. But... Uh, I remember I saw him walking down down the down the big shared yard, um, and he had on a Sony Walkman, and I'd never seen one before. And I was like, "What is that?" I was like, "You need to." And he was real snarky with me. He's like, "It's a Walkman," Duh. and uh, and so I I kind of stalked him and waited for him to go back into his grandparents' house, and then I waited mm. for him to leave without the Walkman, and then I went in and asked his grandma if I could see it. And listen to it. And so I did. And um, I, she said, sit, you know, she sat me down at a table and uh, she just literally gr- randomly grabbed a cassette off of um, a shelf and just put it in. And she put the headphones on me and hit play. And it was uh, lovely Rita on Sgt. Pepper's. Oh my gosh. And That's amazing. I, I was in third grade and I remember having, I had my first and maybe most literally to date powerful spiritual experience in that moment. Mm. Like the, the intrigue of the new technology completely disappeared and the song just took me somewhere else. I love that. Um, and my, my dad was a huge, giant, giant, massive Beatles fan. He literally mm. can play like any Beatles song on the guitar but cool. I didn't. I wasn't raised listening to them. My parents had cut out all of like the secular music from their past. Yep, same. Um, and uh, I, I remember I ran home and told my parents about this song. And I remember my dad like being like really overjoyed that I had you know basically discovered his first love of music on my own. Well, but I yeah, that. I I honestly like. I honestly still believe that I'm chasing every time I create music. Um, I'm chasing the feeling I had when I was in third grade and I heard that song. Yeah. Um, there's nothing better than like, and, and, and there's only been a handful of times, especially as the older I've gotten, but where you hear something the first time and it literally like affects you like that. Where you're like, what is this? How is this made? Who is this person? You know, or people. Yeah. And then in that later in that same year, I remember um, this song "Betty Davis Eyes" was big, and I'd heard it oh. on the radio. 
um, from some, one of the other kids probably had shown it to me in the neighborhood. And I remember getting out like cookie sheets and pans and pots and trying to recreate those crazy like eighties drum sounds on it as a third grader. And, uh, I kind of see that as the inception of my like production life, you know, (laughs) like trying to recreate or, or create, you know, musical sounds or whatever. And then from there, I, you know, I start, my parents were both musical and I kind of started screwing around with singing and um, playing guitar around that same year, third or fourth grade. Cool. Cool. Yeah. um, What about you? Well, before I jump into me, you said Betty Davis eyes. That reminds me, when I was young, we had records and we had a Chipmunk record that was like '80s hits. And the, yeah, for the longest time, I thought that the songs that were on there were made up just for the Chipmunks. Yeah. <laughs> and they they did Betty Davis eyes. And so yeah. I just thought when I heard the real version years later, I was probably in high school or something. I was like, oh, that's not a song that was written for them. That was yeah. that's a real song. Oh, but, dude, yeah, we had Chipmunk Punk and when I was little, oh, which yeah? was like all these like you know Ramones and stuff like that. And I did, yeah. you know, same thing. I just thought it was probably they were the just same Chipmunk songs. And uh, yeah, that's but so it, cool. It's really funny how those had a huge influence on me, though. Like, yeah, totally. That's so funny. Those are probably the same series. We had uh, Chipmunk Country and we had Chipmunk. Chipmunk, I guess that's. Uh, I don't know what they probably called it, but 80s or... Yeah, know, pop. Or pop, or yeah, or whatever. Because yeah. it was in the 80s. I doubt they called it 80s. Um, yeah, okay. So, uh, it's funny. Like, my mom sang a lot. She played piano around the house every once in a while. So, I, I probably my first, you know, I do kind of remember her singing around the house. But I haven't, I'm sure it was a hymn or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I did have one of my earliest memories... We moved to Atlanta, uh, the Atlanta area when I was five. We lived in Tennessee before that, right outside of Nashville in Dixon, Tennessee. Um, and I vaguely remember that house and a couple things. But we had a, I had a tape recorder and I would be taping myself singing or my mom singing or talk on it and do like a radio oh, show kind awesome. of thing. I lost that tape years ago. I don't know where it is, but man, I would love <sighs> to, oh, Well, I say I would love. I'd probably cringe my, my ass off. But oh, it I would also be... It would be nostalgic um, (laughs) to bring that word back. But um, yeah, my actual like first song that I remember hearing and going, what is that was also a Beatles song. My brother uh, was in some kind of, you know, play musical thing, whatever theater thing that the elementary school put on. Mm -hmm. And I was, I was too young to be, I think I was in pre-K, so I wasn't in school yet. And we went to go see it and they sang, she loves you. And, I just was like, what is this song? And it was like wow. a day day or two later, I was still singing it. My mom was like, you remember that song from, a, you know? And um, yeah, that was, I mean, yeah, that was, but I didn't know who they were. It wasn't until I was in high school that I found out who the Beatles were. And I was like, oh, I know all these songs. And then it was like, I already, I already loved them. I just didn't know who they were. Cause yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, my parents were very similar to yours in a way that like, Secular music was not allowed in our house. I mean, it was a right. lot of like Sandy Patty, Phil Driscoll, Second Ch- Chapter of Acts. Yeah, you know, yeah. Stuff like that. Um, um, <laughs> lots I of have hymns. a really funny story about that. Even younger, I, this just it's popped into my head, but yeah, my, yeah. I, have an, I have a sister that's 10 years older than me, and she was the total rebel. And uh, um, 
I mean, I was probably in like first or second grade when this happened, but um, she we weren't she wasn't allowed to listen to the radio or anything like that, but she did anyway. And uh, mm-hmm. I would hear it like when she would like babysit us, like I would hear her songs. And I remember my I was <laughs> in the kitchen or the car or something, and I started singing "Hot Blooded" by Foreigner. And oh, nice! My, and my mom was like, "Where did you hear that?" <laughs> That's so funny. And I totally threw my sister under the bus because my mom was so mad. And then my sister got in a bunch of trouble. But yeah, that the, the thought of that now is so funny to me because my parents aren't even like that anymore at all. Like right, not yeah. even remotely. Like, um, But at the time it was just like I had committed the, this sin, this huge you know, sin, this yeah. horrible sin by like hearing and repeating Hot Blooded by Foreigner. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that reminds me. I mean, like we, so we listened to a lot of Christian stuff. There was also hymns and stuff like that. But my, my dad used to sing opera in college. And so we would listen to opera and classical music Mm -hmm. as well. And that was a big influence on me for sure. And, um, but my eldest brother was seven years older than me. Mm -hmm. So um, kind of a similar thing. He, it was at a point where they didn't govern him as much as they were governing us. And, mm-hmm. uh, I used to sneak in his room and steal CDs and stuff. And he had, you know, Tom Petty's greatest hits and Metallica black. And, uh-huh. awesome. and um, uh, so, uh, Jeff, um, what's his name? uh, Jimmy Buffett, Jimmy Buffett, uh, greatest hits and that Jimmy mm-hmm. Buffett's greatest hits. That was another kind of funny thing. Cause I thought, uh, the, his songs, were made for just the grocery store. Cause that's the only time I ever heard them. And when I <laughs> listened to it on the CD, I was like, why does he have these, these grocery store songs on a CD? This is so oh, strange. That is so good. That is great. Yeah. Um, yeah. So my, my parents, their phase of like strict, you know, no secular music in the house or in your mind or your heart or whatever era mm-hmm. really only lasted until I was in about fifth grade. Um, mm-hmm. They kind of like really relaxed. But before that, and even after that, they were also like really anti like cheesy Christian music at the time. So I was, you know, my some of my earliest music memories are also of like, at the time, what would have been like the really cool Christian music, like Phil mm-hmm. Kagey, Randy Stonehill, Larry Norman, Daniel Amos, all that stuff. And Keith Green even. And, um, you know, there was some second chapter of Acts in there for sure. And uh, But, you know, that, that stuff had a huge influence on me musically. Cause, hmm. And I still have really fond memories of, especially that older, like late 70s, early 80s stuff that was coming out of uh, mostly California. Um was just awesome. And, you know, Larry Norman was, you know, he, I was hugely influenced by Larry Norman. Mm. Uh, but then in like fourth or fifth grade, we had this lady staying with us and she had an eight track machine, which I was another thing where I was just like, what is this? You know, and I yeah. remember, and she sat me down with it with headphones and she only had maybe two or three eight track tapes, but one of them was the Eagles greatest hits. Mm. And the other one was uh, Pat Benatar's, uh, a Pat Benatar one. And I just listened to both of those over and over and over and over. Um, and I still, I still listen to the Eagles greatest hits. I think it's freaking awesome. And I, and all you Eagles haters out there, I, yeah. I love, I love like their first three records, like a lot. And uh, if you don't, then you're lost. <laughs> 
I, I'll be honest. I think for the longest time I was a equals hater. I now can appreciate who they are and the talent that is there. And there are, I mean, obviously you can't, you know, there's songs that you can't deny or great songs. Um, Dude. I don't know yeah. that I have ever had a moment in my life where I've sat down and been like, I'm going to listen to the Eagles today. Oh, you know? God, I've got like th- three vinyl, three old yeah. Eagles vinyl that I have listened to many times. That's awesome. Yeah. We used to take our, uh, we used to have a, a tape player. And we used to, because we, to get around our, my mother's or my parents' rule of, you know, not listening to cycling music is we would take the tape player and we would watch MTV, which we also weren't allowed to watch while they were gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and we would just have it ready. And when a video came on that we knew we liked, we would press record. And then when we would be able to listen to our little, you know, our Walkmans, you know, we would listen to stuff that we weren't allowed to listen to, but our parents didn't know. <laughs> That's um, so great. <laughs> so I can't remember. I know that there was uh, um, Mama, I'm Coming Home by Ozzy Osbourne that was on there. <laughs> Um, I'm sure there was Guns N' Roses on there. I remember that too, being on the bus in elementary school, and uh, they—I guess the kids were singing, or it was on that they played the radio through it. I don't know, but it, you know, uh, "Welcome to the Jungle." Um, that was yeah. definitely something I remember. Um, That's great. Um, yeah, and then uh, this is—I think I talked about this a little bit. I'm just sort of trying to get to through a little bit of the chronology of the timeline of yeah, my yeah. musical. Um, That's what we're here I think for. I, I think I talked about this, that Scott Hunter and I, you know, basically kind of snuck into his brother's room and took a bunch of right. tapes. Yeah. Um, and it was like, you know, Tears for Fears, The Cure, Echo and the Bunnymen, yeah. um, Thomas Dolby. Like, um, there was a bunch of tapes that we, that are, you know, are still huge, like, I mean, the first, it was head on the door and it was the first time I'd ever heard the cure. And it just, I mean, it was like life changing, but for both of us, I mean, we both became lifelong diehard cure fans. And then also my sister was a huge influence. She was like a, like a legit, like punk rocker, you know, Mm -hmm. in the like late seventies, early eighties. And she started in probably around sixth grade. She started fifth or sixth grade. She started making me tapes and, um, one in particular was like, it was a Clash record. I don't remember which record it was. Hmm. I feel like it was, it might have been London Calling. I don't remember. And then with, uh, and then Armed Forces by Elvis Costello on the other side of this tape. You know, she recorded them from vinyl. And that That's was awesome. like, she became like, and you know, Elvis Costello became massive influence, the Clash um, as well. And she became kind of a source to me for like, this cool factor that I couldn't find anywhere else, you know, cause she was older and cool and just had the weirdest record collection ever. I love and, that. uh, yeah, you know, all those things. And then I used to tape the radio. This is for a different reason though. I used to record, um, the radio, um, but it was like pop radio. And, mm. uh, I had this like secret, like by the time I was in like middle school and like high school, um, I kind of hid my pop, my love of pop music from a from like my cool gothy alternative I, friends. I get that, yeah. And uh, so I would like tape the radio, and like I had like hidden 
like vinyl and like 45s and stuff that would hide <laughs> in between other ones. So if my friends came over, they wouldn't see them, you know, like Michael Jackson. And I remember I, the only song I remember taping on the radio was Lean On Me. <laughs> Which one? Lean On Me. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I uh, I think my first time hearing Lean On Me was uh, DC Talks version of that song. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that was the first Christian band that I heard that I was actually, oh, they make music, like Christians can make music that sounds good. What is this? Mm-hmm. And, well, you know, and looking back, Heaven Bound is not good. Um, but, but at the time, I thought that thing was awesome. Yeah, it's funny because <laughs> once the floodgates were opened for me with like, um, you know, the non-Christian music mm-hmm. and I felt zero um, mostly I felt zero guilt. There was actually a time later on in my life, I think maybe even in my early 20s, where I got rid of all my uh, secular music. In a yeah, I did that twice. Uh, it was the worst decision uh, I've ever made. Um, there's some records that I had that were And they were CDs, were like, too. I mean, it was just yeah. awful. But once the floodgates were opened for me, I, I basically lost all interest in Christian music. Like, yeah. Other than, you know, if it was a band I was working with or people kind of in the circle that we were in, in the, in the like tooth and nail, mm-hmm. five minute walk, poor Lou kind of frontline circle, yeah. uh, certain bands, but there was a point where I just kind of never looked back. Um, yeah. And I, and, and honestly, like to this day, there's, you know, huge Christian artists um, that I literally could not. And I'm not saying this to brag. I think it's just because I don't think it's a, a, a flex or a brag in any way. I just think it's if some people find it interesting when I share this. But like if I heard Third Day or, um, you know, DC Talk, even other than like Jesus Freak or whatever, I couldn't necessarily tell you who it was. Like, I don't even know what a lot of these bands sound like. I don't know any of their songs. I don't know. You asked me about Rich Mullins. I know who Rich Mullins is, but I don't, right. I've never listened to him. I don't know anything about that world. Um, yeah. And even as a producer, like when more mainstream Christian bands would come in and they would reference things, I would literally have to go like listen to them on line yeah. or ask them for, to bring a CD in or something. Cause I couldn't, I didn't know what it was. Yeah. Totally. I get that. And and then in your defense, though, too, I mean, like I newsboys in their heyday, I loved them. But nowadays I couldn't be I couldn't be arsed to listen to them. You know, like it, it, it's not yes. the same. It doesn't it doesn't seem like it has any authenticity or heart in it anymore. It's a machine. It's and I really want to be clear that I'm not um, trying to diss any of this music i'm really not even from an artistic perspective it just doesn't touch you it was a it was like a drug to me at the time and i i didn't get my fix from any of it i was just it was i was completely disinterested um yeah and there was there was this depth of um something coming out of especially eventually like almost i would say at least over 50 percent of the music i was listening to was coming from the uk by the time i was in high school um and there was just a whole other thing happening as far as i was concerned totally and honestly i'm jealous of you a little bit i we literally it was very strict for us music wise uh, my dad was a minister of music, so he would go pretty mm-hmm. often to the Christian bookstore to get um, those 
tapes that are like basically karaoke tapes where the, you can sing a song to it. Right, right. It's got the, mm-hmm. backing, the backing tracks. and uh, Or looking for sheet music, you know, to... Mm-hmm. to to have some new songs and new and, and such. I mean, I remember him actually giving kickback for praise music. And then of course now, I mean, who doesn't use praise music now? Now it's like the old praise music is good, but new praise music, you know, like, yeah. but like my brother and I would go with him. And since we weren't allowed to have uh, secular music and after we found out there is music, you know, DC talk, we would go and we would, they'd have those listening centers. And that's where my brother, my brother, John and I, he, he's probably my biggest, influence and that's when i started getting into bands and it mm-hmm. it wasn't until i was in my 20s honestly that i after two attempts to, of of getting into secular giving away my cds and getting them back and giving them away again that i finally just like was like I, I don't know i mean you can i don't know where you stand on this but i honestly believe that that music is magic and i do believe in a higher power and stuff and so i do believe that something somewhere somehow is is using this person or these people to uh to share and communicate and make this art and and so i was like you know it's just all beautiful and i don't need Mm -hmm. to be keeping myself from something that is beautiful and magic just because of someone else's rules and so but it took me to my 20s and really it was then when i started really getting into nirvana and or maybe late teens but yeah maybe 17, 17, 18, but yeah, Nirvana, Beatles, that kind of stuff is really when, when my life changed. Yeah. I, I completely agree with you that, uh, music and, you know, a lot of forms of creative expression is, is magical. Um, I mean, I have had the most profound spiritual experiences from music of anything that Mm -hmm. I, maybe food is the only thing that's sort of comparable, but, um, and if it's I a remember, place where you can watch a show and eat food at the same time. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> Best of both worlds. I remember even back in the day, like when I was still a Christian, like feeling like I could sense a sense of God or worship or acknowledgement of God or whatever, um, more so in a lot of bands that were not, proclaiming to be Christians um, totally. more, way more than other uh, because it was such a pure um, expression of, you know, humanity and uh, what it means to be uh, alive and all the, you know, the, that connection um, yeah. to me was m- more of an expression of, of a divine, you know, I wouldn't have said it that way then, but um yeah. And so, I, I mean, that used to be a big argument for me when I would get into it with people that would be kind of like, are you sure you should be listening to that? You know, garbage in, garbage out kind of thing. And yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting. But yeah, the magic part of it is 100%. I mean, I it's the, it's the most mysterious, it's the most mysterious um, thing that I know of, basically. And yeah. the fact that I get to understand it a tiny, tiny bit enough to participate in it um, is just something that when I really like put that into perspective, I'm overwhelmed with gratitude. Um, Yeah. I don't know about you. I take it for granted because, you know, I've been writing music for so long and it it came so easily to me that I think that when I I talk to people and they're like, you need to be, you need, like, you're lucky. Like you're, yeah. you know, like Absolutely. you need to appreciate this. And I'm like, 
it, I have to sometimes take a moment and, and kind of reflect like that to go, yeah, mm-hmm. I guess you're right. I guess I forget that not everybody can or does do this, you know? I, obviously, obviously, you and I also surround ourselves with a lot of musicians because that's who our friends are because we're working with them or, you know, whatever. And so, um, right. but yeah, it, we are lucky to, to have that. Um, it, it's insane when you really think about it. Um, you know, I don't, I definitely take it for granted more more than not. But when I really do, when I have a kind of moment of clarity about it, it's it's really crazy. I mean, there's definitely a lot of curses that come along with it, you know, that I, I still deal with all the time, the insecurities yeah. and the, you know, the imposter syndrome kind of stuff that you deal with. Um, but uh, it's wor- it's all worth it, <laughs> yeah. you know, I think. It's it's one of those things that if you're questioning yourself, then you're doing the right thing. It's when you're right. not questioning yourself that you really need to be worried. Yep. You know. Um, well, I guess that would be a good segue to to ask you. I mean, like, so m- music as a as a writer as a contributor to this magic. When when did that begin for you? How did that begin for you? Right. Um, the first songs. Gosh, I feel like I you know I started. Um, the first instrument that I really connected with was uh, was the piano. We, we were living mm-hmm. in this house that had a piano in it um, mm-hmm. on Vashon, and uh, it was. I you know I started f- figuring out there was actually a lady that helped me learn a song, um, a neighbor, um, mm-hmm. and then I kind of figured out that I could pick out rudimentary stuff by ear on the piano and um, it just sort of came naturally to me. And, and, you know, this is like fourth or fifth grade maybe. And then um, sixth grade was really when it kind of all started with Scott. When I moved back to Vashon from California and Scott Mm -hmm. had moved to Vashon while I was gone. Um, And he and I, I believe the we did these like funny kind of funny songs like mm-hmm. about his turtle. He had a turtle that used to climb his curtains and stuff, and we wrote a song about that and um, recorded it. Like I, I had, you know, rigged up this like really hilarious way to record um, and bounce back and forth between a cassette player and a stereo reel to reel with Y cables, so we could like overdub. Um, I didn't even have a four track at the time. Awesome. And um, we recorded a couple things, and then we decided to start doing to try doing serious music. Um, but then around that same time is when I met I met Jeremy Enoch um, through Nick Barber, mm-hmm. and Jeremy and Nick and I made some songs around the same time as well. Um, I actually Scott actually has. We still have those songs that we made in sixth grade, sixth and seventh grade with Jeremy. Um, there, yeah. and some of them are really cool. Um, but uh, but yeah, that was sort of the beginning, and and the funny like um, there was this kind of funny crossroads that we came to with like kind of either working with Jeremy or Scott. Um, oh yeah, and we had we kind of had to like make a decision, um, but. I really would have loved to have seen what would have happened if you guys had decided to do a Beatles kind of thing and you had two singers and two songwriters kind of thing. We did it for a minute. Um, yeah. We actually did one air quotes show. 
<laughs> on, on our porch um, with Jesse and everything. I mean, uh, and they both sang. And um, it, it was during this festival that happens every year. And we got, we actually managed to get at least, I think there was a maybe 20 people in our front yard. That's awesome. Um, and we played, um, you know, with just totally thrown together gear. I don't even know how we had a PA or anything. We must have borrowed something from the church that my dad worked at or something. Um, but yeah, we did one appearance with both Jeremy Enoch and Scott Hunter. Nice. <laughs> so the beginning, these these early recordings, this is basically just a tape deck where you're pressing record and, and you're just trying to balance it in the room and that's it? Yeah. Some I, I don't remember how... I must have had some sort of mixer or some preamp to get the mic. The, 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 I don't remember how I did it to be yeah, honest. Just, uh, but we eventually, actually by the time that we, some of the Jeremy stuff, we did have a four track and I, I don't remember if it was his or I think I borrowed one from someone. Mm. Cause I, I remember I had this, um, Roland TR 505 drum machine and a Juno, Oh, what was it called? It wasn't a 106 or it was like a Juno one or something. It was like their first digital Juno. It was actually a really cool synth. I wish, it, but I borrowed it from yeah. this guy named Danny Bruce on Vashon. And, uh, uh, we, we made a bunch of stuff with that. Like, you know, I had a guitar and, and a synth and, and a drum machine. Um, That's so awesome. Mostly the stuff with Jeremy. We and we had a name for that band. It was like mm -hmm. it was called Tears of a King, and uh, it was That's Nick cool. and Scott and I. <laughs> That's awesome. I mean Nick and Jeremy and I. Uh, but yeah, it was awesome. I remember That's I so had a, cool. a leather jacket that I painted uh, Tears of a King <laughs> on the back of. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, so you started with piano. Your first songs were they instrumental or or did they have melod like yeah. vocal melodies? They're instrumental. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't start writing my own top line like vocals and lyrics mm -hmm. until later. Um, I was mostly doing music and collaborating. Right. The first song I remember completing, like with lyrics and vocals and everything, was a song I wrote for my girlfriend. Mm. In it was either eighth or ninth grade, um, and I recorded it. I booked studio time and recorded it and everything. Um, did it work to give I mean, to she, give to her as a present? She loved it. I, I honestly don't. I think she did. I don't really remember. I, I remember recording it, and actually, I kind of remember how it goes. Parts of it. I think I have it on a cassette somewhere That's too. So funny. Um, I really. I hope I do at least. You're gonna dig out all these old gems. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah. Uh, so how did you get, uh, when did the guitar come in? You know, did it, I mean, was it just a slippery slope? You started doing piano and then it just kind of, you picked well, up something so, else and then. Yeah. So guitar, I, I had screwed around with guitar before piano really. Um, mm -hmm. but my, my dad's guitar, um, my dad had this incredible guitar that got stolen and it just breaks my heart. It was like the coolest. It was a 70 something Martin D 35. Mm. And, uh, Dang. It, it, for my little hands, you know, it was just a, a steel string acoustic was just rough. To, mm. to, I couldn't, I mean, I'm still a kind of a wuss. So, you know, to pr pressing down on those strings was rough. So once the, yep. I could just press down on the keys, I kind of switched over. But 
by the time I was in like sixth grade, I had gotten a guitar. Um, my dad, <laughs> this is a terrible story. I mean, it's an amazing story, but it ends terribly. But a guy just gave, a guy, I don't even remember who it was, gave my dad a um, a Les Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, that was my first guitar. Um, wow. Basically, I just got that. And my, I think my cousin Jason had like a PV amp that he wasn't using, and I borrowed it. Um, and... Um, so that's when I started playing. And then I eventually traded that <laughs> guitar. I traded that guitar at this music store in Seattle for a Strat. I wanted a Strat because of the, ed- because of the edge. And mm-hmm. uh, I found out later that it was a, that the, the Les Paul, it, it had been stripped. Like it was a natural finish on it, mm-hmm. but it was like a 60 something gold top. Um, mm. It was worth like a lot of money, and the the guys totally like Ruined knew it. that. Yeah, no, no, the the people that I traded for this Japanese strat, they knew what it was, and they totally screwed us over on purpose. Like, oh you know, man, like I found out years later, I actually knew a guy that like knew of that trade because it was like legendary. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, when I kind of figured out that I could play guitar enough to. Yeah. Knew what I wanted to do that that became the primary thing yeah. for ever since like any musical um, lessons ever no no um just my dad you know yeah. if I had a question I would ask him you know how to do this or that or um you know once I knew the basic chords um man I I just this is so weird this just popped into my head but in youth group um our youth group, I grew, my dad was a young life leader before he even was a youth pastor or even a volunteer youth pastor. But, and then the youth group that I grew up in used the young life songbook, mm-hmm. um, like a lot. And, um, the young life songbook, if you're not familiar with it, especially the old one was like, it was like, there was, I think there was like Christian songs in it, but there was a ton of non-Christian songs in it too, mm-hmm. that were just non that they were like not offensive, like bridge over troubled waters or, you know, songs like that. And, but the chords were all in there. And I remember like, once I knew, you know, every chord, Mm -hmm. it was just like, just sitting around with that book, you know, at a retreat or whatever and grab a guitar and just like learn whatever song, just get people around to sing it with us. And, and then figuring out, you know, how to play songs of bands I was into, but yeah, Young Life Songbook was a huge, uh, huge thing in my life. That's I, and I never think about that. That's so crazy. I can picture the cover of it and everything. This brown cover, but um, that's awesome. Yeah, and then you know once we so the way that uh, we started again, some of this is going to overlap with the Poralu episode. Maybe I don't know if we're going to go through the history of Poralu or not. But we um, we had Scott and Nick and I had recorded um or actually I don't know if we recorded it yet but we had made some songs I had upgraded to a different drum machine a different synth and I would sequence drums and synth and then play guitar and Nick would play bass and Scott would sing and we did that was when we did our first I think it would guess be an EP it was a few songs actually maybe it wasn't an EP maybe it was like eight songs I don't remember is that the whole bell bang villa? bell bang villa yeah and um that was really put together we were asked by our youth leader, Craig, to go on a mission trip to Germany during Christmas time. Mm-hmm. 
um, where we were going to do a play, a Christmas play in schools. Over there, they would let you do kind of religious stuff in the public schools. And uh, we did this like Christmas play. And then Scott and Nick and I performed like maybe two or three songs, I forget. And I brought yeah. like my drum machine and synth so that would we, the drums were pre-programmed and the keys were pre-programmed. So I would just play my guitar and Scott would sing and Nick would play bass. And that was when we kind of really started putting together like nice. thinking about like recording songs and producing songs and performing them live. And then my brother had been kind of off and on playing with us, but he, mm-hmm. I, uh, and he was, you know, a couple years younger, but all of a sudden we were just like, why isn't Jesse playing with us? This is so dumb that we're using this drum machine yeah. when we could have Jesse. So then that happened and then, you know, we changed the name and all that stuff. Um, That's awesome. But oh. yeah, that was, those four guys were, yeah. you know, who I really learned to write songs with. Um, and I think they would say the same. I, I love that you guys are still us. friends too. That's, that's, mm-hmm. um, that's pretty awesome. What, what about singing? Well, I mean, like, right. have you always thought of yourself as a front man or as a singer? I mean, when did that kind of become a thing where you're like, I, I can do this too, or, or, you know, even just background vocals, maybe even. It was more. really uncomfortable for me at first. I think when I did that song for my girlfriend, I kind of realized, you know, it was something I probably wanted to pursue, but I was really comfortable being like a songwriter and guitar player, um, musical songwriter and guitar player. Scott mm-hmm. wrote, you know, the v- lyrics and the vocal melodies and stuff. Yeah. But, um, you know, Ring True, I don't remember. I think I, I wrote the music for Ring True, and which it's a Pearl Lou song that I sing lead vocals yeah. on. It's on Sin. And, um, to yeah, it's on out. Sin. Um, I wrote the music and I had these vocal melodies and I don't remember whose idea it was. I don't remember if it was me or Scott or whatever, but I was like, I want to sing it. I think it would be cool if there was a song mm-hmm. that I sing on the record or, or I don't remember what it was. Um, but what ended up happening with it is... I I was really I had this like song that I really liked. I loved the vibe of it. It was kind of beatly and like um mm-hmm. I had vocal melody that I really liked, but I couldn't write I could not finish any lyrics for it. Mm-hmm. And so Scott actually wrote the lyrics for that song. Oh. Um compl- 100%. Cool. Um and it was interesting because I don't think Scott had had to do something where he was kind of working with a phonetic constraint because mm-hmm. I was like very, I was very particular about sort of s- certain s- syllable patterns and uh, um, phonetic kind of sounds yeah. and stuff on certain parts of it. So he kind of had to figure that out. And yeah, he was such a, you know, he was such a wordsmith, you know, yeah. and, um, but that was the, my first time I you know, had recorded vocals on lead vocals. I did sing yeah. background vocals on other Poro Lou stuff, but, um, and that I think was kind of what started me down the path of, of wanting to kind of do my own thing. I, yeah. um, I wanted to, I had kind of an idea. <laughs> I had a very specific idea for a specific sound in my head yeah. that I'm still chasing <laughs> right now. Yeah. I, I love was that. Trying though, I mean, to get there on the last thing I recorded, <laughs> but yeah. Um, but yeah, that's what eventually turned into Rose Blossom Punch, and then solo stuff, and Fair, and more yeah. solo stuff, and all that. And so, um, do you play drums? Or I'm assuming you can, but horribly. You don't. I mean, yeah. 
I pl- yeah, horribly. The only mm-hmm. thing I've even come close to playing drums on was Moon Traveler, and I had this um, Akai MPC um, sampler that I would record. Um, I just would record parts like a hi hat yeah. loop or a kick yeah. loop or a snare loop and then move blend them all together. It was something my brother used to tell me like if you actually tried you you could actually be a pretty good drummer but um I just never had the yeah I didn't there was no reason for me to like work on it and um the limb separation thing was always tough for me. Um but yeah, so when what about you when did you start writing songs? Like what was your first uh, memory of that? My my first memory of writing I I used to sing to myself and make up songs. Um, I did that, and then we had a piano in our house too, and I would go and write mm-hmm. like classical-ish, you know, uh, sonatas and stuff <laughs> right, <laughs> uh, on right. the piano yeah. and such. Yep. Um, and I remember um, lots of A minor. Yeah, <laughs> I think there definitely were a lot of minor songs. Yeah, um, a minor was my jam. All the white keys. <laughs> now I need to find my. I actually. So I. Uh, can you read? Uh, like sheet music and stuff? No, not no, at all. Okay. So uh, I so I started that way and then my parents saw me doing this and there was a lady at our church that did the um organ and piano and stuff and she gave lessons and so my parents I think they had already worked it out with even without even asking me, but they were like, We're gonna get you piano lessons and I was like at first I was uh toxic masculinity reader said and I was like, No way. Girls take piano lessons. Why would I yeah. want to do that? And they're like, Yeah, but what about and I loved Michael W. Smith. So like, what about Michael uh-huh. W. Smith right. or yeah. or Elton John? You know, and I was like, Oh, now you got me. You know, like <laughs> so I started taking piano lessons. I loved it. I uh, learned how to read music and, uh, and such. And I went to piano camp. I only remembered going to piano camp one year, but they made, like, the piano camp was for people that were really gifted. You had to, like, audition to be part of this piano camp at Rome. It was up in Rome, Georgia. I don't remember the mm-hmm. name of the school. Um, it'll come to me, maybe. Who knows? But, um, but they made a specific class for me that summer that was just about composing and arranging for an orchestra. And I was the only student, and this one professor gave up his time to meet with me Whoa. that summer, and it was just me and him, and it was, like, the, the stuff I learned was infallible. I mean, like, it was just, like, that's not the right word. Uh, anyway, it was amazing. It was so, so important. Invaluable. Invaluable, yes. And, like, um, yeah, that really was, like, that's when I learned how to write my own music and write it down and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So I have somewhere sheet music um, with my, and I don't sight read very well, but my wife, Ava, sight reads um, really, really well piano. And so she has played some of them for me and it's a little embarrassing because they're pretty clunky and cheesy, but but some of them have some pretty metal melodies. So that, that's that, really cool. That was that. And then my family, my, my dad and both my brothers had played trumpet. And my, like I said, my dad was a minister and he was in, uh, you know, a uh, minister of music. So he was in charge of the choir and youth choir and all that kind of stuff. So from a very early age, I was singing. And I remember in probably nine years old, ever had my first solo in church and it was a Christmas thing. And, and uh, I think it was, what child is this is what I sang. And I was just sweating bullets and scared and stuff. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> but that feeling when I did it and nailed it and saw the reaction I got and like people tell me how great I sang, that was when I was like, Oh, maybe I can do this. And of course, there's a little bit of the competition. I got two brothers that they're inquiring school and they're good. And mm-hmm. I'm like, I'll do better than them and and such. And um, and then uh, 
yeah, both my brothers and my father played trumpet. So I learned trumpet in middle school and took that into high school. And then in high school, they moved me to uh, euphonium and baritone because they had way too many trumpets and I was not that great. I was just good enough. And, um, and then they needed, they needed a bass player for the jazz band. So, uh, I guess I'm skipping ahead because I had learned guitar when I was about 15. I went to a church camp and I'd always wanted to learn how to play guitar and, um, they were giving lessons. So I, I learned, and I, th- I think the Barney song and, and, um, uh, Wipeout were the first two songs I learned on guitar. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, um, I brought it home and got a chord book and did exactly what you did. I, I, I basically like just started buying books where it would teach me or like, I, was very lucky to have a good ear so like i think mm-hmm. Nir- i learned like every nirvana song kind mm-hmm. of thing um my first band was with my brother john uh, he sang i wrote the songs and played guitar so i guess it was a very oasis kind of thing yes. um we only i mean it didn't sound like oasis but you know like dynamic whatever. yeah yep and um we uh played at church only that's the only gigs we ever had and our band name was without remorse and it was him and me, um, we had a drummer. His name was Nick. Had a bass player. I'm gonna remember. I'm not remembering their names, but we had a bass player and a guitar player um, named Corey. And uh, we played a couple times. And we did some covers, like some white white heart covers and and stuff like that. Yes. But we also did a lot of originals. And my originals are. I mean, I do have tapes of this stuff, and it is cringy. Um, <laughs> It's just like I would get on the tape and they'd be like, this song's about drug addiction and like how this person really needs Christ. And then I go into this, this super minor, you could tell I was into Nirvana and grunge and stuff like oh, super depressing awesome. stuff and like so bad. Um, I need to hear that. Yeah. And yeah, I guess the only reason I actually became a lead singer was because uh, my brother and I kind of weren't seeing eye to eye. I was writing the songs and he wasn't putting the right feeling into it that I wanted kind of thing. And so then I kind of like, and, and it was also, you're young and nobody's showing up for practice or, you know, we're not, we're not progressing. And so finally I was like, I'm just going to do this. So then I just wrote all these songs. And at one point I remember I would write them out and write the lyrics and put chords on the top on, I had like notebooks of songs and then I had a tape player and I just would record on the tape player. And there's like one summer or whatever i recorded probably like 40 songs on a tape Whoa. and when i was in high school i let this girl that was a good friend of mine borrow it i've never seen it again i would love to well i still got the notebook so i guess i could maybe figure out but i don't know what the melodies were you know kind of thing but um but yeah they were all kind of grungy kind of stuff and then like i said in high school they needed a, a bass player for the jazz band and that was definitely ab- above my pay grade because i i i even now i'm I'm a great rhythm guitar player. I can play drums if it's simple. You know, like I, I basically, I could be a great ACDC drummer, you know, no fills. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Two and four, let's yeah. go. Um, and I, I can uh, play, I actually can play bass well now, but it was because of this. They threw me in there and I could read music and I played guitar. So he's like, we need a bass player. You're going to do this. And that was, I'm so glad oh, they cool. did that. But man, yeah. that was so hard. And um, yeah, I got kicked out of, uh, band in high school because I went to go see the band. Um, oh man, what is the name of that band? Uh, it's gonna drive me nuts. Uh, they were from New Orleans too. Anyway, oh, I'll figure it out later. And I don't know, whatever. Anyway, but um, went to go see them play, and um, I they, I lied and I got caught in my lie, and 
they ended up being like, uh, well, you're no longer a band. And I was like, kind of <sighs> devastated. Jeez. I have I my... Have... F- go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Yeah, I, that's high school is also when I had my first real band, and it was very much kind of a Beatles thing. It was this guy, um, and uh, man, my mind is not working. Yeah, anyway, this guy sang and wrote songs, and I sang and I wrote songs, and we wrote together. And our band name was um, oh, The World's Fair, and um, Oscar Smith, that's his name, Oscar Smith and I. Um, and it was really cool because we had two different dynamics and stuff mm-hmm. and like it was great, but he started writing songs that <clears throat> were not, uh, were not edifying to Christ and, uh, <laughs> or whatever the right thing is. And so I was like, this is not where God wants me to be. So I left the band. Um, and, uh, wow. yeah, that was my formative years Good for sure. For you. That's awesome. I have a really funny story that I've never told in any public forum about that you just reminded me of on multiple levels. But when I was in, I was a freshman, the, um, the summer before my freshman year, um, mm-hmm. um, I wanted to do band. Um, and my cousin, Jason, the same one that had the PV amp, he had an alto saxophone that he just didn't use. So he gave it to me, you know, he let me borrow it. And I, you know, went out and got, I think I bought a new mouthpiece and some reeds for it. And I'd never played a sax in my life, but I figured out how to play it over the summer. That's pretty cool. And I figured out how to play mainly songs from the Back to the Future soundtrack that had saxophone in them. It was like the, the songs I learned how That's to play. Awesome. Uh, you know, from the band for, at the dance. Um, yeah. But, uh, and I joined band. And I remember thinking like, okay, this is going to be good. I'm going to learn how to, you know, read music. Band mm-hmm. will teach me how to read music. And I never learned how to read music um, because I just would hear the songs and figure them out and play them. Right. And, um, and I became the first chair alto sax player. That's awesome. And well, <laughs> it's really, really funny what happened. So, um, and I, I remember the teacher would, I was kind of a teacher's pet, like, guy. And it was, uh, there was this one day where he did this surprise, you know, test mm-hmm. where he said, you know, open up this um, piece. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to give you a bar number and you just have to start playing from that bar oh, no. by yourself. And he literally, I'm not joking, he said, and, and to get, uh, and to show us how it's done, I'm going to start with Aaron. Oh, no. And um, he did it. He said the bar number. And I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if I've ever been this panicked in my entire life. Yeah. But I, I remember I just had to look up in front of everyone. My face was probably beet red. And I just said, I don't. I can't do it. And he's like, what do you mean you can't do it? And he's like, I said, I don't know how to read this music. I just figure out the songs and play them. And he kicked me out of band that moment. He said, wow. I want you to leave and I, I don't want you to come back. Wow. <laughs> so I had a traumatic experience around sheet music <laughs> that yeah. I, that probably kept me from ever wanting to learn anything about it. Yeah. I mean, I still remember like every good boy does fine or whatever, but that's all yeah. I remember. Um, 
but yeah, that's, I think that story is really funny. I think he, that was such a dick move for him to kick me out in front of everybody. Yeah. Too. Like, I mean, I don't know about you, but all the band leaders I ever had in middle school and high school were always assholes. I mean, I, I just have to assume they were just being underpaid, dealing with stupid kids and they had some dreams to be like sticks or something and they just never made it, you know, like, yeah. And you, <laughs> I, I, I liked the band culture i like the people the other kids i really liked you know being a band geek or whatever <clears throat> but um i would like to think that if i was that guy i would have been like okay this kid you know needs yeah. some attention you know maybe i can you know get yeah, some one on one time with him and show him you know why it would be beneficial for him to learn how to read music right yeah especially you've got um, that talent obviously you know raw you would think that we go Okay, well, he's got this. He's obviously missing something here, you know. But I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, who knows why people do what they do? But you know, you obviously yeah. did have some talent, and you did something with it. <laughs> That's such a crazy. Story. Do you do you still play sax at all? No, it's funny. I years ago I like rented one from a band uh-huh. rental place to try to, and I just never had a reason to like. Yeah. I still like kind of fantasize about picking it up again. Um, you guys heard it here first. Aaron's next album is going to be an instrumental album with only sax solos. Yeah, or just like a. I could just overdub a bunch of sax tracks, and that's it. That's all. <laughs> it's that's only on it. sax. Yeah, it's just sax. Co- <laughs> and you'll just, just detune, detune them to real low, so you can like have the bass yeah, in there too. Yep, and like all the drums will just be me like clicking the keys and tapping the the horn <laughs> i love it this this will be your re- next remix album Holy i do crap. have a photo of me and and kenny g too oh wow i got I to, need to meet him post that 80s. on the internet yeah and that'll be the end of part one of our conversation about our musical journeys if you want to get in touch with us you can get in touch with matthew at pacifico rock on all the socials you can get a hold of me at aaronsprinklemusic.com and you can email the podcast directly at moontravelingpodcast at gmail.com. If you like this podcast, you should definitely check out the Moon Traveling Podcast Facebook group. It's where we post extra info and playlists and photos and stuff like that. It's probably the best place you can engage with Matthew and I and other people that are listening to the podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the flip side. Might have been you came to stay. Going along on a summer's day In a round, call the parade and sing I'm heading in the sun again